0: If you've got your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, turn with me to the book of Acts. We want to look at the first verses of Acts this morning. And in light of our stated commitment to that which does not change, to the gospel of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, in light of our commitment to that gospel which does not change, even though we are in a community and we are in a campus that is under constant change, I want us to look at a passage of scripture that gives us our marching orders. It's a passage that outlines truly the mission of the church. And it was given to us by the Lord Jesus himself in the in the moments before he ascended back to heaven. So with your Bibles open there, begin reading with me. I want to read the first eight verses of Acts chapter one. Read with me there in your copy of God's word. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, which the father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we gather as your people here in this place this morning, we are reminded of the hope that we have in you. We're reminded of the fact that no matter what differences and what changes may come into our lives, and truly all of our lives have been marked with change, Lord, we recognize that the constant that has always been there from even before we were cognizant of your presence even to this very moment right now, is that you've always been there and you've always reached out to us in love. That your your scriptures convey the message of love that you have for each one of us and that that love was demonstrated most clearly in you sending of your son to die on Calvary's cross in our place for our sins, for our benefit. And so, Lord, we are so grateful for that. We... We fail in our language to truly be able to express to you how grateful we are for the salvation that you have given us through your son. And we know that that salvation is something upon which we can depend because you raised him from the dead on the third day. So, Father, as your church assembles here this morning, we do so humbly. We do so expectantly. We do so with thankful hearts for all that you have done. And I want to thank you for all that you've done for our local church family right here. And, and this morning with all the, the turned up dirt that's out there and steel that's strewn everywhere and cranes that are on site and windows that allow more light in than we've ever experienced here in this room and all kinds of things, God, we're just reminded of, of your great power to calm us, to help us to know that what's accomplished being accomplished is It's what you've led us to. And Lord, we know that you will never lead us into a place that you will also not provide all that we need in the process. So I thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. I thank you for this place. I thank you for this people. And I ask that you would just bless us and keep us united and keep us uh, just grabbed together arm in arm as we walk down this road together, excited about what you're going to do on this campus. And Lord, it's not about brick and mortar. Father, that's not the point. The point is, is that we want a place where we can minister to people and share the good news of the gospel. And I pray for every square foot that is built, that your name would be made known in that square foot, that every person who walks in this building, who walks these hallways, these corridors that are going to be built, the places, Lord, where, where the, the, the rooms that will inhabit children and youth and adults, that your name will be declared and that gospel will be clearly made known and that men, women, boys, and girls will come to know you as their Lord and Savior. And Father, if that's the case, then every dollar and every day that was spent will be worth it. So I pray that you would that you would have your will and your way in the life of Ivy Creek Baptist Church. Continue to guide us. Continue to, to help us in every way to honor you. and We'll praise you and we'll thank you for all that you're doing in Christ's holy name. Amen. The book of Acts is written by Luke. Um, he's the same author who wrote the gospel of Luke. And and both the book of Acts and the book of Luke are addressed to the same man, addressed to a man that we know very little about. His name is Theophilus. Uh, We do know this, though, Luke Luke tells Theophilus there in the first verse that I read for you earlier that the purpose of his writing the gospel of Luke was so that he could declare all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's, That's there in the opening verses of Luke's gospel. But then he says here in Acts, that, that the book of Acts was written as a follow-up to his gospel. It's sort of the, the second um, uh, edition or the second uh, book that he writes in order to describe what Jesus continued to do through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in working in the lives of his followers after his ascension back to heaven. But prior to his ascension, these opening verses that I read for you earlier really are, are how Luke, talks about what occurred just before Jesus ascended back to the Father. And, and you'll notice how many times he talks about Jesus presenting himself to his disciples. And, and the reason I point that out to you is because, if you'll recall, we looked at that last Sunday... From, from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about the fact that, that Christ's resurrection was verified by the many who encountered him many times following his resurrection before he ascended. That's exactly what Luke is referring to here in these first verses of the book of Acts. His, his Christ's resurrection was verified. It was validated by these face-to-face encounters. And then in verses 4 and 5, notice that Luke goes on to recount How just prior to his ascension, Jesus gathered all of his disciples together back into one place, and he told them to wait there until, in there in Jerusalem, until the Holy Spirit came. And he tells them, You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And it was that announcement that sparked a question from his disciples in verse six. And they asked this question, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, it's been my experience in life that the questions people ask often reveal a lot about them. If you meet someone or you talk to people, they'll, like me, times will start asking questions. And if they, if they ask enough questions, you'll begin to figure out what's important to them and, and sort of the, the direction that they want to find things out about you and And what's interesting to me is here here in this question that the disciples ask in verse 6, you learn something about them. You learn some things that they got right about the kingdom of God, and you learn some things that they did not get right about the kingdom of God just simply based upon their question. To begin with, let me point out that the disciples got it right about who Jesus was. They call him Lord. They address him as, as Lord. They had come to grips with the fact that because of his resurrection, he had the authority, he had the power to accomplish his will. He was the one who was in authority. He was Lord, and they called him as such. They knew he was king. They knew that he had a kingdom that he would rule over. Nevertheless, we must recognize that Christ's disciples were confused about the nature of his kingdom. Their lack of understanding is demonstrated in three ways. The first way that you see it is that they use the word restore in their question. They show that they were expecting a political or a territorial kingdom. They were looking for a kingdom that resembled that which David, King David had overseen or or King Solomon had overseen. They were looking for a monarchy that that they could enjoy in that world. They were looking for the restoration of something that had already been known. Something like what had come before. The second misunderstanding of the kingdom is evident from the fact that they expected the kingdom to be restored to Israel. In other words, they were expecting a national kingdom. An ethnically restricted kingdom. A kingdom that would, that would set them up and single them out. They were looking for a kingdom like that. And then finally, we see that the disciples were expecting an immediate establishment of the kingdom. They asked, will you at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel. So just briefly, the disciples were looking for something with which they could identify, something that was familiar to them. They they were looking for a kingdom that that they could find on a map, a kingdom that was territorial in nature, and they were looking for something instant and immediate. They They were wanting Christ to inaugurate his kingdom right then and there. But what I want you to notice is that Jesus' response to their question exposed just how little they understood about the kingdom that he came to inaugurate. He immediately tells them in verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Um, It's almost like Jesus said, boys, that's above your pay grade. You ever been in that scenario before where where you, you, you thought that the question that you asked was a good question, and you were expecting a good answer, and the person you asked the question turned around and looked at you. That ain't none of your business. Well, Jesus is a lot more polite than that. He says it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has put in His own authority. You realize that that just follows right along with what Jesus said of of Himself. Jesus said this in Mark thirteen verse thirty two. But of that day and hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father. So here in verse 7 Jesus effectively tells his disciples that the when the when of the kingdom was not for them to know. Rather they should focus their attention on how and what and the where of the kingdom. He reorients the question that they're asking to the more important things, and he tells them those things by what he says in verse 8. Read with it with me again. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples disciples had been anxious for a timetable, but Jesus reoriented their thinking And says, when is not the important question. You need to consider how. How. In answering how, Jesus promised that it would come through power. But notice, he doesn't say that it's just going to come through any kind of power. He's not talking about political power. He's not talking about military power. He's talking about a specific kind of power and the greatest power in all the universe. He's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, notice the first point that I want you to see today. The how of the church's mission is the power of the Holy Spirit. The how of the church's mission is the power of the Holy Spirit. This statement by Jesus should have alerted his disciples to the fact that the kingdom that he was established was not physical in nature, but spiritual. Jesus himself said as much when he was put under uh, questioning by Pilate just prior to his crucifixion. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus said this, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from here, he says. Now that didn't mean, Christ was, when he said this, didn't mean that he would not one day rule and reign physically here on earth. In fact, the scriptures clearly teach that he will. But the reign will come after Christ rules and reigns in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. And listen, the battle that wages on that front is not one that is fought with spears and swords and guns and tanks. Rather, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, it is a battle that is fought against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Consequently, Jesus reorients his disciples' question from when to how. And the how was through the Holy Spirit's power. But then that leads Jesus to address the what. What was it that the disciples were supposed to focus their attention on doing through this Holy Spirit power that would come to them? Jesus says it plainly in verse 8. He says, you shall be witnesses to me. Literally, the Greek says there, you shall be, you shall be my witnesses. And that leads me to the next point that I want you to say on your outline. The what of the church's mission is the witness of Christ's followers. The what of the church's mission is the witness of Christ's followers. What Jesus goes on to tell his disciples is that rather than worrying about when, the kingdom would be inaugurated. They should rather concern themselves with what they should be doing in the meantime. What what Jesus tells them is that in the interim period between his ascension back to the Father in heaven and his ultimate return to the earth, the what that the disciples are to be engaged in is witnessing, testifying to who Christ is and what he's done. And in truth, that really is the job of a witness, if you think about it. The job of a witness is, is to simply tell someone else what he or she has seen and heard. And listen, as Christ's followers, that's our responsibility. It is to carry the testimony to others about something of which we know. The Apostle John describes that responsibility very clearly in the very first words of the first epistle that he wrote. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, John says this: "That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was the Father, which was with the Father, and has appeared to us. Brothers and sisters, to be a witness of Christ, to give testimony of him and what he has done is to tell others of the good news of the gospel. It means telling others that because of Christ's death and and his burial and his resurrection that we looked at intently last week, we tell them because of what Christ has done, there is pardon for sin. It it means telling men, women, boys, and girls that that because of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, sinners like you and me can have eternal life. We We don't peddle the gospel. We don't manipulate others with it. We simply tell others the truth of the gospel that has transformed our own lives, and that through Christ there is eternal life and there is pardon for all who will confess him as Lord and repent of their sins. Now some of you may be thinking, well, that, that scares me. It scares me to engage in a conversation like that with someone, because what if I get it? What if I get it wrong? What if I get tongue-tied? What if I stutter? What if I can't remember the right verses? What if they ask me a question that I can't answer? What I talking, I, I freeze up when I talk to people, Pastor. You don't understand. I, I, just, I, I just let me bring, bring you with me and we'll go talk to these people. And and here's what I would say to you about that. Remember, remember the what that we're looking at here is preceded by the how. The what is the witnessing. But the how is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me assure you, the Holy Spirit doesn't stutter. The Holy Spirit doesn't stammer with with the truth of the gospel. When you pray and you ask for the Holy Spirit to help you, I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to help you and wants to be able to communicate clearly through you to those who need to hear it And so you trust in the power of the Holy Spirit and you look for opportunities to engage those who do not know Christ and then you willingly step forward into that moment believing that the Holy Spirit wants to use you and you open your mouth and you begin to speak. Now, does that mean that you shouldn't prepare? Absolutely not. A prepared person who engages in delivering the gospel is exactly what we need to be. We need to be people who commit Scripture to memory so that we can recall it at the moment when we're there in that moment to talk to people. We need to study. There are wonderful opportunities and wonderful ways in which you can learn to share the gospel freely and and easily. There's plenty of plans that are out there that will help you to be able to to, to recall how to lead someone through the fact that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And I would encourage you to find one of those that makes sense and and, and is easy for you to to follow along, to use, but but please know that it is through the power of the Holy Spirit working through you that you will be able to engage others with the, the plan of the gospel. Now, should you think, I would also say this to you. What's also helpful sometimes is to tell someone what happened to you. You know, one of the one of the I once was lost. Now I've been found. I once was blind. Now I see. I would encourage you, just as I talked with someone, to write your testimony down. Spend time making sure that you can clearly communicate what happened to you and how your life changed as a result of God working in your life through your repentance and through your trust in him. And as you write that down, make sure that you rehearse it so that you can have that there in your arsenal, ready to to share with those whom the Lord crosses your path. So the Holy Spirit is the how, the witnessing is the what, but notice finally, with regard to his kingdom, Jesus answers where? He says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. In other words, the kingdom of Christ is going to be a worldwide kingdom. And so we embrace all the nations and the regions of this world. And so the third point I want you to see here is this. The where of the church's mission is the ends of the earth. The where of the church's mission is the end of the earth. It's an ever-widening circle. If you've ever been down to a pond, I pass one as I come here on Camp Branch Road, every, 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 Monday, every Sunday and every Monday and every other day that I come here, I pass this pond. And this morning, it, it, it was just still. It was clear. And I, I, I can't take still, clear ponds. I have to do something. Either throw a, you either throw a hook in it or you throw a rock in it, one or the other. But, but whenever you throw a rock in the middle of a steel pond, what happens? Ripples. Listen, that's exactly what Jesus describes here. Stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And listen, when the Holy Spirit comes, that holy rock is going to come in and it's going to send ripples all the way out to the edges of the pond, the known pond, the entire world. Ripples are going to occur and it's going to continue to spread out and it's going to go into all of Judea. It's not just going to stay in Jerusalem, boys. It's going all the way out. It's going to Samaria. It's going to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's not just something to be contained in one spot. We have to remember that here at Ivy Creek. It's not just for us to wholly huddle up together here in this locale. No, we are coming here to get filled up and to praise the Lord Jesus so that he sends us out like rockets into this world with a gospel message on our lips to encounter the folks that we live next to and the people we work with and the people we go to school with and the folks that we meet at the mall. The places that we go, we're to carry that good news of the gospel with us because the Holy Spirit is propelling us outward. Now, I want you to know this message was probably not well received by those first group because remember, they didn't like the Samaritans. They liked their own kind. They, okay, we'll go to Judea, but we don't like the Samaritans too much. And the Gentiles, we, they pretty much had a hatred for them. In some respects, this this message of sending them out was not the greatest of news to them with regard to the fact that it was going to push them outside of their comfort zone. Let me tell you this. When you obey the Holy Spirit and you move into the world taking the gospel, it will push you ever increasingly outside your comfort zone. But can I tell you this as sweetly as I know how, as your pastor, God's not interested in your comfort zone. God's not interested in it. He didn't come to die on Calvary's cross bearing your sins in mind, so that we could say, I need to stay where I'm comfortable. He came and died for our sins, saved us from the penalty of our sins so that we might go out with a holy hot heart to be able to proclaim the good news of the gospel to lost men, women, boys, and girls who are headed for hell. God's not God's not saving and didn't save us and didn't call us to just stay comfortable. And here's the best part. When we get to heaven, you know when we look around heaven, you know what we'll see? John tells us in Revelation 7 verses 9 through 10, he says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is what heaven is going to be like. And it will be comprised of people from every skin color, every ethnicity, every language. But amid all that diversity, what will unite us together is the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed so that we might be saved. The Bible clearly tells us that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we can be saved except for the name of Jesus Christ. And that is why we must go That is why we must be willing to leave our comforts behind in order to bear witness to the salvation that Christ offers. And as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is our collective ministry. And therefore, each of us has a responsibility to be engaged in it. All of us are to be actively witnessing to the good news that Jesus Christ offers pardon and eternal life to those who will repent of their sins and confess him as Lord. And that is what leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. As we wait for our Lord's return, the church's mission is to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit as we engage in the worldwide witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what, that's is what—that's the mission that we are called to engage upon. So, so in light of that, I want to ask you two questions as we close today. Two questions for us to ponder. The first was this. Are you actively engaged in fulfilling the mission that Christ has given you? Are you faithfully being a witness to Christ and the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection? And what I mean by that is, are you regularly engaging someone in your life with the truth of the gospel? Are you you volunteering your time, utilizing your talents to serve the Lord in order to reach others for Christ? Maybe I could even put it this way because some of us are so busy. Here's the question. Are Are you allowing for there to be space in your life so that you can witness to Christ? Are you praying for others who are on the front lines? Are you praying for missionaries regularly? Are you praying for your Sunday school teachers? Are you praying for the Iwana workers? Are you praying for for your pastors? Are Are you faithfully supporting the ministries of this church through your giving? How are you actively fulfilling your call to fulfill your part in the church's ministry? Because every single one of us is called to be a part of that collective ministry? Are you being faithful to it? That's the first question that this text demands and the question that demands that we hold ourselves accountable because I want you to know one day you will be held accountable by the one who gave it to you. The second question really flows from the first. You see, you can only witness to something that you yourself have experienced. So my second question is this. Do you have a testimony that you can personally share with someone else? Has your heart been captured by the grace and by the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sin and confessed him as your Savior and your Lord? The way I like to put it, have you forsaken all others and all else and embraced Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation? Listen, if you cannot answer that question in the affirmative, then I want you to know that today, today is the day of salvation. Christ offers pardon for sins and hope for eternity through what he has accomplished on the cross. And as I say almost every week, there is no greater news that I ever have the opportunity to share publicly or privately than that Jesus Christ died for sinners just like you and just like me. And my only hope rests in the same thing that your only hope is, and that is that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried on the third day. He rose from the grave according to the scriptures. Is that your testimony? Well, if not, then it can be today. Come to Jesus. Come to him in humility, admitting your sin, trusting in him to be your savior. Call out to him. Ask him to save you from the penalty of your sins. Give your heart wholly to him. And if you'll do that, he will save you. And you will then have a testimony that you can take to others. I want you to know that this passage here in Acts, and this is just our first one, but this passage here in Acts demands an honest answer to both of those questions. Do you have a testimony? Are you sharing that testimony? My mission this morning has been to deliver the gospel to you and to compel you to believe it and then compel you to take the good news of that gospel to the world around you. That is my prayer because, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Thank you for the the testimonies that collectively we share across this room, that you are our Lord and our Savior who has forgiven us of our sins and given us life eternal. I pray that you will give us a hot heart for you and that you will compel us to go out into the world around us and share the good news of Christ. I pray that you would help us to to be able to embrace all the opportunities that we have right here on this campus to do exactly that as well. Lord, help us not to ever get confused. That that you have not called us to just engage in holy huddles here. Yes, we come to this place, Lord, to to learn more about you, to be encouraged in our faith, walk with you, then we go out from here to embrace that which is around us, not so that we can become like it, but so that we can introduce the change that has changed us. So I pray that you would help us to do that, Lord. Thank you for this message. Thank you for this text. And thank you for these people. I pray you, praise you in Christ's name. Amen.